Welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and today we are going to take another step towards escaping the cave by actually re-watching or re-listening to an old episode that I am transferring over from my other show, That's BS. So, as I said before, um, this show is basically the new start to anything that I'm doing related to philosophy, and that show is continuing to be um, a political show, a show about society, culture, um, a more laid-back discussion show. So this is a an episode that I had previously done um, on That's BS, but I think it's relevant to this show and its topics, and so I'm going to carry it over. So here it is, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to That's BS. I'm Jordan. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. And I'm Teddy. And today we've got a very special guest. We've got Helen Pluckrose with us today. So, uh, Helen, welcome, and tr- give people just a kind of a short-form bio, if you would. Um, oh. I'd be surprised <laughs> if people don't know you on this channel, but go ahead and do that. Yeah, no, well, th- thanks for having me on. I'm um, I'm the editor of uh, Aereo Magazine, a humanist, um, free speech, uh, sort of science, culture, and tech. And I, um, yeah, I, I've just come out of, of academia where I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about um, epistemology and ethics that are, are going on within the humanities and um, have been a part of a, a project sort of exploring that in more depth with uh, James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian. Mm-hmm. And the project you're referring to is uh, colloquially known as the gender studies hoax, I guess? Yeah, grievance studies. Is yes. That's what we've... Um, we've called it it's uh, gender studies is is certainly a large part of it but it's mm-hmm. um yeah it's bigger than that so what fields do grievance studies entail well they're not fields as such as um approaches theoretical approaches so anything that um uses um theory with the um, inverted commas um which <laughs> is drawn from you know a, a sort of whole load of um of postmodern theory that came out in the 60s and then evolved in the late 80s to become more politically actionable. People who are, are drawing on that kind of theoretical framework and understanding of the world to analyze um, power relations. That's that's what we are calling grievance studies. Okay. So do all of them have this skew of sort of activism almost, it seems? Uh, is that a, a defining characteristic of all of them or just some? That the ones we are criticizing are there. There's some very good um, work out there still. Obviously, where where people are, are looking at all kinds of um, of things that are affecting uh, minority groups or women in all over the world, and they're using empirical data and they're using um, consistently ethical arguments. But what we are looking at is the kind of scholarship which starts with its conclusion and then reads it. Uh, it in it in there because what we're seeing is there's an assumption that any interaction between a person with an identity considered privileged and a person with an identity considered marginalized will be characterized by a power imbalance it isn't um did racism or sexism take place it's how did it manifest in that situation this this is is the way it's it's looked at so we we wrote a lot of papers which essentially did that it assumed that um, a power imbalance existed and then we we found it in all kinds of unlikely ways and um, argued that that had proved it mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's that's a perfect segue into um i guess so for people who may not be aware um Give us the like kind of, I guess, short form of the the project that you and Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay did. So you wrote these papers. Um, 
with the intent of doing an Alan Soko style hoax, right? Yeah, well, a bit different to to Alan Sokol because he um, he wrote something which was absolutely meaningless in order to show that um, postmodern language was so obscure and so misused science that anything that used the right terms could get through, and he did that brilliantly. What we have done is taken dozens and, in fact, hundreds of sources that are already out there, the worst ideas um, from all over the fields, brought them together to argue um even even worse ideas we've just brought the the worst of the lot together and um and made insane and unethical arguments and we wrote 20 papers in total over 10 months but um we'd hoped to continue a bit longer we had seven accepted um four were published and we had seven that were progressing through the system and five of those were progressing favorably so we had strong hopes of them but we got court and we we had to um call it to a, a close before we could we could see how far we'd get yeah and how how many because that's i mean that's an insane amount of papers to write in such a short time how mm -hmm. many fields or or i guess areas of um study did you actually uh, write the papers for like how many individual academic journals and stuff um well the the seven that we that we got in are, are all in different ones we had two accepted to hypatia though but they're they're very far afield this is where people misunderstand if we talk about fields and um disciplines because we have one in the field of geography for example now we don't think that there's a problem with geography generally but there's this one journal was turning out a lot of um deeply theoretical feminist geography and so we we sent um some of its worst ideas and, and ideas from other places back to it to, to see what would what it would do there was also affilia the social work journal hypatia the feminist philosophy um journal that's putting out an, an awful lot of um feminist feminist and critical race epistemology at the moment and um yeah that, so there's there's quite a, a variety of of fields but what is characterizing them is an acceptance of um, social justice scholarship rooted in in postmodern theory. Hmm. Can you can you uh, explain what you meant by feminist geography? <laughs> yeah, I, I want to know what that <laughs> is too. <laughs> yeah, the feminist geography is um, we're looking at uh, how spaces, how particular spaces um, affect uh, women, how patriarchy and um, rape culture and all other kinds of things can. Um, can happen in um, in certain spaces. So the one we got in there was the one in which we argued that um, a dog park in Portland, Oregon, um, was a rape condoning space, and this showed that uh, nightclubs are too, and um, and that we could probably do with training men like dogs. <laughs> that was Teddy's favorite one, wasn't it? That, that's oh, everyone's yeah. favorite one. It's the one you all remember. It's our silliest, and that's yeah. why. <laughs> that that one got accepted to to a paper. Yes, and, and it got um, a special commendation as well. It was one of 12 <laughs> accepted to to show off the sort of, yeah, burgeoning research. It was, wow. It was awful. <laughs> well, congratulations for that. <laughs> uh, I don't <so>, know. <laughs> yeah. So what, I'm curious, what was the process of writing those papers like? Because, I mean, I have to assume that before that, all of the papers you've written have been with intentions of actually believing what you're arguing for, right? 
Oh yeah, I mean we've written um, all three of us very seriously for years, and we've um, talked about the the need for an evidence based epistemology and the need for um, consistently liberal ethics. And so we have done this. Um, first of all, we we were all sort of uh, from the sort of new atheist um, uh, moment. So we we were criticising mostly uh, religion, and because of where we are geographically, often Christianity. But we're looking at the same things in um, the, the same kinds of irrationalism and illiberalism, but coming from a very different source now. So th this is how we've we've kind of switched our um, our, our techniques to a, to a different subject. And it's, and it's very interesting because when we were criticizing mostly Christianity, we were recognized as being uh, left-wing, quite radically left-wing to a lot of Americans particularly. Now that we're criticizing our form of social justice scholarship, we're we're often accused of being right wing, and I'm not not sure how this this is how it works. But but you asked how the process of of writing went, and, and that one of us would would pick a a topic, we'd discuss it as a group, and then um, having got the go ahead, one of us would write um, a sort of framework for it, and then the other two would come and and put in their bits, their their strengths, and we'd. Um, we'd end up really quite quickly, within about 10 days to two weeks, a paper that was citing dozens of um, sources correctly, accurately, was making um, the arguments and was really indistinguish indistinguishable from other papers in the field. Wow, that, that sounds incredible, actually. I, <laughs> I, um, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that when you were criticizing Christianity, you were um, recognized as being on the left. And then as soon as you switched to criticizing uh, mm. a project of the far left, you were branded as sort of right-wingers. Um, yeah. yeah, we just had uh, this this high school senior, actually, the previous episode before you was a kid named Michael Marino. And he, um, he's been actually getting the, the same thing where he was in a debate um, really on a, and, and, you know, similar topic to the papers you've been publishing. And the, the criticism levied against him was that because he was a white male, uh, that he, you know, for some reason had no authority to speak on certain matters that involved people of race other than white. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, he fought back saying that this is, this is not a good standard by which we should argue that, um, you know, that my race has nothing to do with matters of factuality. And because of that, he, he is now, um, you know, branded as the same thing, kind of a right winger. And he was talking mm. to us um, a little bit about all of the, like the invitations to to speak or, or op-eds that have written about him. And they've all been from uh, right wing uh, newspapers, I believe. Uh, I don't know if the other guys can remember other ones, but the, no. the Daily Wire wrote <laughs> an op-ed on him um, and, and other magazines like that. And it's just interesting that magazines or articles or, or or publishers that are on the left but don't support radical leftism mm. aren't stepping up in that way. Uh, do you know, I mean, do you have any ideas why that might be the case? Uh, I have lots of ideas, yes. But I'd say that for a certain extent, I mean, I mean it is a bit more complicated than that, I think. For example, one of the the groups who are on the left and are really quite radical themselves, who are critical of the postmodern identitarian address, are the um, the socialists. So we've got the World Socialist um, Web was very interested in our project, and they wrote um, 
they wrote a couple of pieces on it and um, and talked about the problem of postmodernism and how it's a, a bourgeois elitist thing which is taking the left away from the working class etc which is is a genuine um, concern I think so we, there is this there are people on the left we also got quite a positive um, review from the New York Times and um, from Mother Jones and even um, Slate was balanced so I, I think there is a good section of the left which is seeing the problem but of course it's it's going to be the right who are going to jump on criticisms of the left and that's something that worries us and it's something that we've had to to address quite um, quite a lot because there is a kind of misguided loyalty because what we're criticizing goes under the name of social justice scholarship who wants to be against social justice nobody who is considering themselves to be liberal or left or both is going to want to be seen they'd rather if they even if they know that it's there and they know that it's silly they'd rather just ignore it mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah that's that is weird i mean it's almost like not wanting to criticize um I guess it's it's sort of analogous to what you see in like political elections where like you don't someone may not want to criticize Hillary Clinton for fear of driving people towards Donald Trump or something like that yeah. where uh criticisms of Hillary Clinton were definitely warranted and I guess it's sort of the same thing um, yeah, although that that's much more sort of a strategic thing. I remember mm -hmm. um, James getting very annoyed with people who were criticising Hillary after she had been selected as a candidate. You know, before that, yes, if you think there's a better one, good, argue for that. Afterwards, when the choice is her or Trump, just shut up, you know, <laughs> deal, with it, yeah. deal with it later. So I, I think that's because there is literally just two choices there. But I, I think of it more along the lines of... Um, trying to increase confidence in in the liberal left because i obviously what what we were looking at there it, it was about epistemology that that transcends politics but a lot of what we do as well and and um i particularly in in the uk is trying to make the left more credible again to reasonable people and i think if you think of a different situation in which there is clearly a problem everyone knows there's a problem they can see the symptoms of it are you more reassured by somebody who says no nope, there's no problem and if you think there is your your racist sexist bigot or someone who says yes we see it we're on it and i i i think I think that it's a really bad argument to say do not criticize your own side because you'll strengthen the other side. I just think that's bad psychology. Yeah. No, that definitely makes sense. It's sort of uh I guess to put it in Peterson-esque terms, keeping your, you know, room clean before you go clean someone else's room. <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Teddy, do you like that one? <laughs> I don't know if he tells you to clean other people's rooms, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so what what have you and your co-authors been arguing that these papers uh, prove about the academic left? Um, I, I think they're, they're showing that there is a certain ideological conformity within <laughs> certain strands of scholarship, which is, if not absolutely required, and some of our comments show that it is absolutely required, is at least tolerated, is acceptable, is considered to be good scholarship. And that is something that we see as a problem. We're seeing a lot of um, things coming out of the universities now. We're seeing Robin D'Angelo's white um, fragility, which is a really, really worrying um, 
worrying kind of uh, framework for, for looking at talking about racial issues. They're just within her framework, there isn't a way to disagree that society, that, that every white person is racist without actually proving yourself to be racist. It's a, it's a terrible um, way to go about things. And there's, you know, there's, there's um, toxic masculinity and there's um, white ignorance and there's all of this identity-based um, sort of standpoint epistemology, which you, you were talking about first with the, the young man when he was not considered to have the right identity to speak about issues. And he tried to say, I don't accept that um, understanding of knowledge. I think anybody, it's an, an argument stands on its merits or, and that is an older form of liberalism. That is the marketplace of ideas. That's the idea that reason and evidence work. And that is counter to the standpoint epistemology that is coming out of um, postmodern forms of, um, of identity studies. Mm -hmm. One thing that I've never understood about people who espouse standpoint epistemology is, is how do they argue that standpoint epistemology is correct regardless of your skin color. Isn't that sort of like an inherent premise that they're sneaking in there? You know what I mean? Like it, it's true that like I couldn't speak on the experience of a Latino person, mm -hmm. but it, I don't, it just, it seems like it sort of crumbles when you push it in the directions that they're not thinking are very obvious. Like it would presumably also apply to um, an Asian person speaking about a black person's experience, right? Like, but does that, well, are they, are they saying that they can't agree or disagree on factual matters? So what's their position there? That That's the thing that that's what you've just, yeah, spotted. What we are doing is, is confusing experiences with factual claims. And a good example I like to give of this is that if we were going to have a conversation about the experience of giving birth, I would be, an authority on this because I have done that. So that is one thing. But if one of you were happened to be an obstetrician, I would not be the person with the most knowledge on um, giving birth in the room. That knowledge is objective. It's separate from me. I could be wrong about it. Somebody else could be right. He could be a man and never have the experience of giving birth. So at standpoint, epistemology is looking at experiences as the only source of knowledge. It's not evidence which, you know, that the whole sort of scientific idea that the uh, there is an objective um, reality out there and that there are better and worse ways of getting at it. We may not ever be able to be completely sure that we have found it, but that is the aim. It isn't that you know, a reality for me is different to a reality um, to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we could experience reality slightly differently given who we are, but that doesn't mean that reality itself caters to how we view it. Something exactly. like that. Okay. Exactly. That's interesting. Uh, so I guess standpoint epistemology seems to go hand in hand with something like moral relativism, right? Where I guess, where I couldn't, reach across cultural borders or something and say that, um, you know, female genital mutilation in Saudi Arabia is wrong because I, I'd be crossing some sort of a border, um, you know, whether it's geographical or not, um, that I wouldn't be able to, to cross epistemologically. Is that what they'd be saying? Um, yes, there, there, there is that, um, that kind of um, moral relativism where we're not supposed to speak to other cultures and this comes um largely from the the sort of post-colonial um aspect of um of uh, uh, postmodern studies because what 
uh, we're looking at there is the recognition that um, the British Empire, other colonizing forces have uh, trampled on other cultures. They have taken away customs. They have um, uh, taken away food. They have um, uh, imposed languages and religions and all sorts of other customs on on people. And that was that was very wrong. So now there is a great cultural guilt and a wish to respect other cultures or to let at least to let the people who are living within those cultures address them but this still doesn't really <clears throat> work that bit sounds good if we say i mean i don't think fgm is particularly a problem in, in saudi but there certainly are other uh, quite serious problems there if we say we want saudi uh, feminists or saudi women to or human rights activists to talk about this problem that it's not for white western women um, to talk about it, but we do then really need to support the women who are doing that. They're tweeting, stop enslaving Saudi uh, women in English for a reason. So, it, and it, it's, it's a very sort of contradictory, muddled mindset, because if we are, if we take cultural relativism at its, to its full logical conclusion, the people who claim that we live in a rape culture now have no grounds to criticise it that would be what the culture is, it should be accepted. Obviously they do criticize it because they 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 think that rape is wrong, which um, obviously it is. So we've got this real kind of, of mess where people are just trying to tiptoe around um, issues and not uh, recreate a lot of the genuine um, problems of the past, racism, sexism, homophobia, but it's, um, it's just too messy. There's no consistency. There's no ethical consistency there at all. <laughs> and, and just to sort of harken back to what you were saying, you know, about criticizing and sort of influencing cultures that aren't yours, it, mm. it also sort of uh, forgets the historical argument as well. I mean, when you, when you take the abolition of slavery in this country, it's not as though this country, you know, wasn't was completely isolated and decided to, you know, abolish slavery by itself. I mean, England and France had abolished slavery, you know, years before. And that abolition movement obviously played a big role in our country. So, mm. I mean, it, it just, it, it sort of betrays the idea of better ideas winning out in the long run. Yeah. You know what I mean? And just like the, the influence of good ideas, regardless of where they come from. Mm. So. Oh yes, that 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 would not be acceptable at all. The whole marketplace of ideas is understood to be a myth and to essentially just be um, perpetuating the ideas of white Western uh, wealthy men. It's tied with that's um, your story has been told. You have made your arguments. Now shut up and listen to other people. That's the um, the approach there. <laughs> yeah, isn't there? There's there's a claim that science itself is sort of like a patriarchal construction to control pure power, it, right? Like it all boils down to power in some sense for a lot of yes. these people, right? Yep, absolutely. That's um, the Foucauldian idea that uh, of power, knowledge. He, he actually joins the two words together because he thinks knowledge is always a construct of power. And Lyotard, he said with science that it uses the same language as power and government. So there is very much, um, particularly with the original postmodernists, the idea that that science is a construct of the West, which is used to um, oppress other other groups and we see it as well a lot in in post-colonialism which um 
which is which is quite worrying because we're still what we see is is this idea of orientalism where science and reason belong to the west and the east has um has magic and religion and superstition and this was used by colonialist mindsets to essentially try to spread um science and reason to the east now the liberals have come have come along we've come past that stage and we are saying um no science and reason belongs to everybody there are scientists there are liberals there are, are rationalist philosophers everywhere and we've now we have the postmodernists who who want to seem to take us back to that and and say no science and reason are products of the west and they're bad and it's very now racist. We, <laughs> it, it really it's is very and racist I, like, like that's a genuinely oh, racist thought. Like, it's amazing. It, it is if you accept that that science and reason are good things, which I think most of us do. And I, I wonder here in the in the UK, we are absolutely reliant. We have a, a STEM crisis. We, we're not producing enough interest in it. We are reliant on doctors, scientists, engineers from India, Pakistan, and Nigeria, primarily to to do these important um, science jobs. And I, I wonder how they feel if they arrive here and they're told that um, science isn't actually for them and they, they should go and um, and practice witchcraft. That was uh, one of the, it's, it is, as you say, it's racist. <laughs> and, and also like, once again, that betrays history in the sense, you know, just where, where did, you know, mathematics originate, you know, and it's, you know, it, it, how about the Middle East, right? So it, it just, you know, you, you, you examine these sort of cultural and, and sort of thought revolutions throughout the world, and they've happened all over the world. So, yeah. you know, you, you would have to say that essentially mathematics isn't, isn't for the West either. I mean, we've, you know, should, should we go back to, you know, just bartering and trade and, you know, I mean, I, 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 just the, should we just sort of you know, jettison these concepts that weren't originated in our culture? It's an amazing idea. It's it's ridiculous. There's been a couple of articles and a, and a book that have come out recently saying that that maths is is problematic, and it's it's not really just because it, it's supposed to belong to the West, but because it is linear and it has right and wrong answers, and this is intrinsically masculine and oppressive of people with um, more sort of uh, alternate ways of knowing. So how how do any of these thoughts evolve? Like, is there like a sequential uh, event? Were there just like event? Like, from your perspective in Great Britain, has there been uh, defining moments in the political landscape that has kind of gave way to these ideas? Or I, I'm really curious how we got to this point. Well, uh, it's it's slightly different in the UK um, and in the US, but the ideas are the same. And I I'm afraid I I have to say you started it. <laughs> so, <laughs> a lot of it is is coming from the US, and it, it's coming from an intellectual movement. Obviously, this came first of all. Um, the kind of ideas that have have really um, have caught on came from France, but they travelled um, to America via via people like Edward Said and um, and Judith Butler, and then they've they've come back again to us. So, so we had this idea in the sixties, in the late sixties, that was that was postmodernism and it, it was um, leftist academics who'd become disillusioned with Marxism and they're looking at this sort of uh, political landscape in which empire has just ended, we've got the end of Jim Crow, we've got the rise of the civil rights movements, all these certainties that progress was happening were, were, being, were being overturned, the people were just not as certain uh, of their rightness as they were and so we had this postmodernism come up which, which just denied 
the objectivity of truth and which saw everything as as perpetuated in language discourses ways of talking about things makes what truth makes what truth is and that's connected to power so they wrote this sort of small group of intellectuals they wrote prolifically and, and largely incomprehensibly for about 20 years and this didn't have much effect on the rest of the world because it was so insular but then at the in the 80s we there was a change because there was a next wave of theorists and they wanted to make it politically actionable so there was Kimberley Crenshaw who was working in law and she came up with her idea of intersectionality at about the same time as this Judith Butler was talking about intersections and the cultural construction of identity and how it's um, reinforced by performance over in in queer queer theory and we have post-colonialism which is which is growing we have critical race theory which is getting this um, sort of discourse analysis um, part as well and this has all come up and the change then was very explicitly stated we've got postmodernism, which says everything is a cultural construct but you can't do anything with that once you've deconstructed everything and you've left it in pieces on the floor there's nothing more you can do so we need to make it more politically actionable we need to start looking at what we actually know exists and that is structures of power so now we've got this acceptance that an object objective truth exists but it's this intangible web of discourses so we have a whole lot of scholars who are now looking at discourses with the prior knowledge that they're construct their constructs of power and trying to find the power in it and how it is uh, negatively affecting women and um, ethnic minorities and sexual minorities and we've got this great body of work being produced and building on each other which over the years it is gaining the the reputation, it, it looks like legitimate knowledge. This is how knowledge is supposed to work. We have some few core theorists and then they work on each other and then knowledge builds. But when we're looking at, at what is at the root of this, it, it is postmodern theory, which is, is rooted in nothing. And it's, it's ideological, political action on behalf of, of a, a kind of ideology, because it isn't it isn't as simple as, as a lot of people say, well, this is, is action on behalf of women, people of colour, um, LGBTs, because they these people have a variety of political positions and, and ideologies. This is an ideology in service of itself. So so I've got a quick question. When So in regard to truth, how do these people address the physical manifestations of, you know, this this sort of uh, model of truth that we've come up with in the West. Like, for example, with something like science, mm. we can, you know, the physical manifestation of what we've come up with in science is that we have vaccines, we drive cars, you know, we can, you know, pretty much improve the quality of life. We can prove if, if it works or not. Exactly. Yeah. So, so when they say that it's simply a language of power, mm. how, how, like, how do they address, you know, the, the real world implications of well, what science has brought to our lives. What they tend to do when somebody brings up this kind of thing it is then uh, look at um, errors in science, at science having been used for uh, eugenics and for um, scientific racism and for other, um, and for, for scientific sexism as well. So what we've got, it's not quite as, as click up. When we've got the postmodernists and say we've got the most postmodern postmodernist and the most scientific scientist, they both believe that an objective reality exists. They both accept that there is cultural and um, 
and sort of environmental problems which which inhibit getting at it being absolutely sure we've got at it but what we have with the the scientist who is our our model unbiased science the epitome of, of all that is good in science they are putting up um, ways to minimize bias they they want to try to falsify hypotheses they want to replicate they want to 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 try and remove human error as much as they can and you can never ever be absolutely sure you've got to objective truth having done that they continue to look for objective truth They're, they continue to focus on what is real with the modernists they will say yes yes we know you know there is a reality out there but we can't get at it and what they're looking at is the cultural Thing. They, they like to stay in the fog of not knowing and look at how culture could have built up certain forms of knowledge without ever really addressing um, what could be real. They're just not that interested in that. Amazing. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, so one, one question that kind of naturally arises, I guess, is how, how do you or other people successfully argue with someone like this who because it seems like it's a catch-22 right like if you if you come at them with a good argument and you say well hey like you know it's exactly like you said we can work off this like thomas kuhn model of science and and eliminate biases and get as close as we can to objective truth and and you know approximate it closer and closer but you're bringing up all of these arguments but the problem is is that they always have the magic bullet of saying well you're white or you don't understand my experience or there, there's this sort of trump card that they can always play so how do you think it's effective to kind of circumnavigate that and get around those trump cards that they have well that that was really the whole of our point we have not been able to change the mind of a single um academic who writes in the way that we wrote they have actually quite a few of them have said our papers were actually sound they were good they made good arguments they used proper research we just didn't believe in them <laughs> so that was their problem but they really are a small minority i mean academics generally are a small part of um society and and these kind of studies are um, a small area. I'm, we're worried because they're affecting politics. But even then, studies show time and time and again that only something like 8% of people um, think that identity politics in the form of, of uh, you know, language censorship is a good thing. That's, that's a tiny number of people. We're not going to get through to the people who are really, you know, committed to this. But there is an awful lot of other people who are on the left or they're somewhere in the centre or they're on the right, they're, they're liberal, they're reasonable people, they don't want to, they either don't understand what is happening with postmodern kind of um, social justice scholarship and they're just ignoring it, or they don't want to be seen to be against social justice, which is what it would sound like. So they're pretending the problem doesn't exist. What we wanted to do was show that it does. So we're not talking to the dyed-in-the-wool zealots we're talking to the the majority of people who we still think are reasonable and who don't really either don't accept or don't know that this is happening mm -hmm. if we can get the support of them if more people would distance themselves more academics will distance themselves from this kind of scholarship if it can become less respectable then there's going to be less draw for people to go into it in the first place it's going to get marginalized Okay. So sort of taking out the next generation of people who would presumably carry this forward. Mm. Um, okay. That makes so, sense. To what degree have you seen this, this mindset spill over into other disciplines like, mm. like history or 
Uh, mm. What are some other social sciences? I guess like sociology or. Well, I guess the ones you were still like, discussing. Would, would, like, would gender studies be part of sociology? I, I don't is, know. Is, that, is, is that a subset or? Uh, it's um we 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 got ourselves in trouble for that because we we included sociology in one of the fields that have got um the problems and a lot of sociologists came out and said look we do empirical research and they showed us that they did and so we're you know we're we're not um criticizing the entire field of sociology but yes a lot of um the subdisciplines that are using these theories are subsets of of sociology so that that is our meaning but, have, yeah. have, you, have you seen this spill over into history or have you seen this in science like you know to what degree have you seen this spill over in other fields or just well i'm there's I'm, I'm getting quite a lot from i mean i i come from from history and literature and that that is why i have have left i um i attempted to to make arguments that we should use more science in um looking at literary theory and in looking at historical um sort of an uh, analysis and and i was uh, i was deemed problematic for this there was only certain types of theory i was allowed to use and and that wasn't included so i'm i do see it uh, going into history there are still people can still do good work and they do do it in history but you have to avoid the taboo topics if you try to say as i did that gender differences exist uh, between men and women and it may mean that they're attracted to different things in each other in different numbers then I was apparently destining women to a terrible beauty myth so you, <laughs> and this is one anecdote this this is me but this is this is my motivation for being concerned about this in the first place I just can't do the rigorous work that I want to do because I want to look at gender historically so I do see it in history and um and in literature because literary theory is is um essentially one of the worst culprits for for having used a lot of this theory with uh science my most of the people who are writing to me from science there there are some people concerned in psychology and um, psychiatry mental health nursing that kind of thing I've been getting quite a lot of letters from those people telling me um how this this theory is being um, brought into their work about um, white privilege and um, gender um, differences and all the rest of it, but it, it's not making doesn't seem to be making too many inroads into science itself at the moment. But it can, of course, threaten the prestige of science. I don't know if you saw Mike Nayner's latest video on Evergreen. Mm -hmm. Can you yeah, explain it? I, I haven't. Who's yeah, well, yeah, Helen, you were there. So, <laughs> <laughs> Mike Mike Nana, he's he's the um, the uh, filmmaker who who is making a documentary about our our project, and he also talked to Heather and Brett and um, got a lot of footage from the events at Evergreen, and there was a direct um, criticism from the student protesters there, and they said that that um, Brett had written had uh, objected to um, people being excluded from the campus on grounds of their race because. He was a scientist that there's a particular problem in science and that um, STEM subjects need to be targeted more. The teachers need to be adjusted and tested on their values because they're they're particularly problematic. So, I mean, Evergreen is an extreme case and it just imploded and it, it's all on camera. So you really have got a, an example of the worst it, it can get to. I mean, it could get mm -hmm. worse, but, you know. But, um, yeah, th this is this is what we're seeing. We're, we're seeing a suspicion of of science there's um because it is going on evidence still because it's 
it's much more more rigorous and um, and sort of linear and formal, that, then there is an assumption that it is implicitly racist and sexist. So scientists, certainly on campus, could could start to um, to feel pressure from a campus culture, but a science itself um, isn't. I don't think being affected too strongly yet. Mm. So you, you, even even that strikes me as racist. It's amazing because it's like you know if, if you're if you take a simply objective view of the world and you attempt to find out what's true of the world, mm. then you're going to arrive at a conclusion that is biased towards certain racial groups. You know, in, in such a way of as as you know portraying a racial group as inferior or you know less capable. Yeah. You know, I it, it's you know. That that mindset is um, it's like what happened to Charles Murray. Sure, sure, and it's I, I just don't understand why. Well, I, I guess I mean this this whole talk actually we don't understand why people think this way. So yeah. I mean like, I I just you know I I can't you know. I, I'm writing a book. It will help you. <laughs> this is what I'm trying to do because it is so counterintuitive. You know, we're all we all generally are still going on this on this sort of consistency this thing it, it just seems so blatantly racist and and for me um sexist I'm, I'm sort of amazed constantly at the sexism of people telling me that that science and and reason are masculine and that they're not for me and that i have my own way of of knowing which is largely emotional um didn't we didn't we liberal feminists of, of the 70s 80s didn't didn't we try and get rid of that i'm, I'm fairly sure we did so it's um <laughs> yeah it, it just yeah it feels regressive, but you you have to understand that they're coming from such a radically different framework that it it doesn't seem racist or sexist to them. Hmm. How, so, so <laughs> how, how how would they have science operate then? You know, uh, right? There's a concept of research justice, and what you would do is that you would have. Um, other ways of knowing coming in there as well and that could include i mean the um the south african um science must fall movement that wanted to include witchcraft but there's also more sort of scholarly um sort of movements there's um alison wolf um and her her um article is is called tell me how that makes you feel and it's an argument for uh, prioritizing feelings over over reason and so, yeah, that what they would like is for people to respect uh, experiences, feelings, um, theoretical interpretations to the same extent as they um, they respect evidence and, and reason and what you, what we call the the correspondence model of truth. See, what, no, but like, what what areas of science would this even bleed into? I, I can't even imagine, you know, a, a panel a panel of chemists sitting down and discussing you know, different interpretations of a model and they all just sort of just nod at each other. You know, that, that's a fair interpretation. You know, I, have, I happen to have a different one and then they all mm-hmm. sort of pat each other on the back afterwards and congratulate each other on, you know, each having their own, you know, view of the model and, and then that's it. I mean, is, uh-huh. that, is yep. that really their, their goal? Yes. Um, I don't know if you've read the, the, the feminist glaciology paper, but I, I, I recommend it so that you can um, you can see how much this is the goal. It, it, it looked at... Um, at uh, glaciology in terms of human ice interactions and um, and implanted a phone on the glacier so that it, it could be communicated with and uh, we what? we took one of the one of our papers that we were actually feeling quite confident about and which we were being encouraged to resubmit for 
quite a few weeks after we'd gone public, had done this with astronomy. We wrote a paper arguing that um, astronomy would benefit from the inclusion of feminist and queer astrology. And uh, that one was um, sent back to us and we, we were to revise it. We didn't have time to to revise it, but they, the comments, some of the comments on that, they said, this is very exciting. We've, we've made some inroads into the soft sciences, psychology and biology, but we haven't really got into physics yet. I would love to see this happen. <laughs> and wow. it, it was really, yes, it was quite, it was quite chilling. Yeah. So, so if you can't distinguish between good ideas, I mean, right ideas and wrong ideas, mm-hmm. how do they expect to, you know, sort of increase the wealth of human knowledge? I mean, how, it, I mean, it doesn't that lead to inevitable stagnation when, everything is equal uh yes so so, yes, so, yes. How, so how do they address that <laughs> they, they they don't acknowledge this and it, we've a lot of people have argued repeatedly that yet yeah, we need ideas to do battle and um no if there's going to be any battle at all what they want is for um identity things uh, arguments to win on identity so if if there's somebody who has an argument and is a white man, then he gets less points than somebody who has an argument and is a black woman. And this is known as the, as the progressive stack. And we, we had a paper on that as well. And that was um, that was on a revise and resubmit from Frankie, which suggested that um, people should be allowed to talk in class dependent on their identity and that white men should sit on the floor in chains. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and this is, um, and, and I see you there in the UK. So, but how does this? But how would this work? And and this is this is because you you are still so much. And and please stay there, in the scientific rationalist mindset. And it, it's very difficult to to try and come out of that and and see the world as as they are are seeing it as this this construct. This these systems of power and privilege and that people are positioned on it and knowledge really is just made up by the way we've categorized things and spoken them it's it's very difficult thing to to understand we were just at a a science conference in in germany and we were trying to explain it to them and they were they were cognitive neuroscientists i think and and then we were just but but what is the methodology but but how are they doing this what is their evidence and no no you you have to come right out of science and and try and try and think more in terms of religion and then you'll you'll get the idea (laughs) so so would it be the case if you Sorry, like ahead, I, I wonder then, would they accept an argument of like a, some sort of uh, government governance under that you have like a dictator that is encompasses every single like oppressed class in the world? Wouldn't that kind of conform to how they view the world, and th- that person should know everything? I guess because that, that's how I'm <laughs> kind of viewing how they're. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think that they don't actually know. It's, would it's recommend that, but that, yeah. that, that's how it would it would work. Yeah, but what we have to notice as well is, is that then when they're saying, um, listen to women of colour or listen to to trans women, etc., they really are just talking about the ones who have bought into the ideology. I mean, one of the, the other papers that, that we wrote, I, I, looked, I took it from a series of papers um, that had just had a, a researcher go out talk to a lot of people whom she considered to have a marginalized identity then interpret what they said um to fit her own her own uh, ideology and i i had um 
I had 18, I think it was, trans people being asked if they felt that they were oppressed by language and nearly all of them said no, but our researcher found that they were anyway. And um, that one, that one was rejected, but it, it um, there had there was some some positive comments on that. It wasn't rejected for the right reason, unfortunately. And I'd like I think that one would have had a chance again, except that we got caught for the same foundation hmm. with that. But th there are so many of them that are, that are just working like that, and it's really so difficult for people to understand unless you're going to do what we did and, and spend a year reading abstracts, reading papers, reading books, and and reproducing it. It's 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 um it's mad it's yeah astounding no, it's, it's really, <laughs> no i i agree i think it's really difficult to to kind of nail down because there are so many internal contradictions in the dogma mm. uh it, it's i mean it really models a religion in that way like you said um mm. it's it's so weird to me that it, it seems like it the the two main contradictions i'm sensing is that it both denigrates people and puts them as like the core focus of the project it says like well your feelings only matter insofar as they align with the ideology like you said with mm -hmm. trans people but then it also claims that uh the feelings of the individual are paramount especially if that person is in a marginalized class so mm. the foundations of the entire ideology seem to be at odds mm. But, but they are. I mean, this, this is what what somebody would do if they were interviewing someone who who had a marginalised identity but wasn't saying the right things. Is they would then um, turn to analysing why they felt this way and what external pressures and how they'd been forced to <laughs> comply with certain discourses or had been, you know, infected by them. So you're just starting with this with this absolute certainty and then you're just going to find yes this person um gets it and is explaining it well oh, this poor person has um has got swallowed up by it um, that's more evidence of how oppressive the system is <laughs> so <laughs> with these things what i'm trying to think of is a way to salvage the field based upon a trend in a lot of other fields where things are moving towards <laughs> metrics and sort of like a technology like an increasing presence of technology in a field so mm. if someone is trying to quantify or explain how like their auto ethnography, uh, auto ethnographical story, like their own perspective, they're trying to uh, push that in like a super articulate way. Is there a chance that, I don't know, this is sort of conjecture, but cognitive neuroscience gets to a point where these people can actually use uh, like reliable, uh, falsifiable metrics to talk about their stories? Like you can imagine someone who's talking about the experiences of being a woman in feminist theater, um, <laughs> in the Middle East or something. And what they can mm. do is they can start to tap into maybe blood pressure measurements and then they could tap into mood states based upon the harmonics of neural signals. And then what you end up actually getting is a redeemable uh, project. You know, you're getting something that's falsifiable, something with data and science smuggles its way back into the, uh, the discipline. I, I, I see your cunning plan. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> It would um, it would go down very well at, at the moment when because um, you know J James is a mathematician and and he um, tried to get some some quantitative data into some of them which he he made deliberately um, not impossible and that, that this is just too confusing and he he tells us it was under undergraduate statistics that he was putting in there nope it's too confusing take it out people won't understand. Oh, so it's a rejection <laughs> of the statistical uh, evidence that you come All right. Yeah, see, yeah. Teddy, it's still from your perspective. I mean, these people, yeah. they, they don't care about what's necessarily true, what's going on in the brain. They're like, 
here's yeah. what's objectively true and and frankly that's enough you know what i mean like you know your extra step is still from the the teddy perspective so yeah what well, i'm trying to bring it to its most logical extreme so if based upon the 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 hierarchy of of, of oppression if you get people who are at the top of the hierarchy on three different dimensions um, and they're both competing for like a limited attention, limited resources of funding, and they're both competing for the same journal spots. What can they use to distinguish between each other? Is it just the extension of how good they are at writing? Um, would they well, try to they'd have a, They'd have a kind of a battle yeah. in which they each tried to problematize the other. And <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and then somebody would, would win or, or it would just carry on and then a lot of other academics would get in on it as well and then there'd just be a big problematization fest and um, and it would just yeah proliferate more more nonsense. Yeah, it's hard to try to think of how you could sort of create selective pressures to redeem the field, but it just sort of tumbles into a shitstorm of well, more the same. I, I think what, what we need to do is is to to make it embarrassing to to highlight it to make it embarrassing to make scholars really not want to be seen as part of this grievance studies approach to be seen as empirical scholars in the first couple of weeks after we revealed the probe we were really encouraged by the number of, of um, scholars in social sciences and humanities who came forward and they still hated us but they <laughs> did separate themselves from it and say yeah we know there's silliness there and, and we don't do that we still do solid work and good that is what we want you mm -hmm. are now saying yeah this these ideas are silly we if we can get more people saying that and we're being helped by the fields themselves because they really are getting increasingly silly it's getting harder and harder to for anyone even with slightly reasonable to say that that some of the ideas have worth and we just need to try and try and marginalize it out I mean if, if we think back historically and we look at universities which were dominated by religion mm -hmm. for a long time nobody I mean I'm not sure what it, in America nobody banned um talking about religion it just became a way of interpreting the world that was a little bit embarrassing and a sort of scholarly level it, it wasn't really doing it it properly so this theology got less and less influential and I think with with um, grievance studies we, we need to kind of accelerate that that process and, and just just make fewer people want to do it and fewer people take it seriously and and get it um yeah, get it to the fringes where it belongs. Do you think that addressing it at the the researcher university level where people have already graduated into these positions is the appropriate way when you consider that the education departments that are, you know, creating teachers and putting them out in the field are pushing a lot of these ideologies as the basis of their practice? I mean, there's high school kids coming out with so many interesting ideas, well, interesting in heavy air quotes, mm. uh, that are based upon these small, you said, 8% people. Mm. Or kind of we need a counter-narrative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But at all levels, I guess? Yeah, at all levels. I mean, mm -hmm. this this is where Mike is so useful to us because we're we're talking so much on the level of, of scholarship and, and ideas that this isn't really that um, relevant to a, to a lot of people who aren't part of that. And, and Mike is... Um, yeah, he he's making it he's making it relevant. He's showing it. People are seeing symptoms. They know that there's a, a political correctness. They might call it or identity politics, or you can't say this anymore. And they know things are, are happening. But um, yeah, we're trying to sort of explain why it's happening and try and give people a way to to argue back at it and and to say quite confidently, I don't accept. I don't accept your epistemology, but this isn't how we do it. My, I, my ethics, I am, I am not um, racist, sexist, or homophobic, but I'm not 
going with these ethics. I don't think that's the way to achieve social justice. Mm. Okay. So just, just sort of going off that, you know, what types of people are actually attracted to this field? You know, I mean, I mean, it, you're saying it is a minority of people, but I mean, are, aren't these people generally, you know, of of modest background and they're white? Are you know, is is, is that going to be the case? The trend? I mean, yeah, I and mean, what I'm seeing a lot of, I, and I, I wouldn't like to to try and, and give a demography because I haven't um, looked into the numbers, but if you look at the people. We are we are quoting repeatedly a lot of the papers. What we're looking at, um, sort of demographically, mostly is white women, uh, white middle class women. There are some um, there are some African American women as well, like uh, Christy Dotson and, and Kimberly Crenshaw. But the the journals are, are really full of of, of Allisons. Actually, there's there's an awful lot of Allisons, and they tend to be, yeah, sort of forties uh, um, middle class. Um, white women but um so where, where were we going with that just just what like what attracts these people to this 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 discipline i mean why why you know growing up in this country what makes you hate your own culture enough to you know to to essentially make a career out of criticizing it well i i have my own kind of hypothesis about about this and i think that there are there is a psychology that really get some kind of reward from standing in the fog of of not knowing and from having this sort of moralistic framework to cling to instead and uh, jim uh, james he's just written a, a wonderful piece on um uh, postmodern religion and because uh, he, he spent three years studying the psychology of religion and produced a, a book about the social and psychological needs and he's now been applying this to um to social justice uh, scholarship, because people, the psych, this isn't going to go away. You know, the psychological and social needs that are met by religion. There's the need for, there's a need for guilt. There's a need for repentance, atonement, for, for, um, for, for enforcing morality on other people to feel part of a system to be working for something. And I think that is what's happening with social justice at the moment on a psychological level on an intellectual level there are there are people who just really kind of enjoy the this type of theory and i have to admit i do too this is why i'm one of the very few people who has spent hundreds and hundreds of hours reading it while not thinking it is actually valuable in any way but i can see how it is fun to play with and how you can get from various places with it and i i think there's a kind of these people in, in another time would have been studying the more sort of complicated philosophical theology, you know, because it, it doesn't really work, but there's, there's something there that, that is pleasurable. Hmm. I mean, that, that makes sense. Cause if I, if I reflect on the people that I know in real life who ascribe to these ideas, there is this sort of gleeful, expression of condemnation towards straight white males especially but there you know there's this sort of uh i don't know it's weird this congratulatory nature about it like the more that you can beat down the upper echelons of society the more that you have done for the lower classes instead of trying to elevate you know the people Mm -hmm. at the bottom of the hierarchies um because it seems like they're I don't know if they're incompatible, but they're definitely two different projects, tearing down the top versus building up the bottom. Mm. Um, And it seems like the people who espouse these ideas and who are drawn to them are the people who also 
don't like the harder work of bringing up the bottom, but the easier work <laughs> of tearing down the top. It's a shortcut to signaling mm. your status. I mean, Helen, you wrote about this in your Othello and um, what was ah. it the natural? Yeah. So you're yeah, familiar that, with that was with the one I got in trouble with. <laughs> oh, did you? Do you want to talk about that a bit? It was a really interesting paper. Uh, yeah. Well, my my um, professor didn't think so. I um, got the <laughs> lowest grade I would ever have got, and if I'd done that again, oh. I would just have failed. So oh. yes, I got area, which I didn't own then to to publish that one mm -hmm. but yeah, it didn't go down well at all <laughs> have you tried publishing it again are there are there outlets that are more open to these kind of things um i don't not not as far as i know no i mean mm -hmm. I, i've got um you know jonathan gottshall he um, he wrote a wonderful book that i've i've called on on heavily and he seems to be getting stuff published out there somewhere and it, it'd be lovely to go back at some point and actually actually do this actually go back and look at gender gender roles and um, women's uh, place in society and be able to use a bit of biology and and science in there. <laughs> yeah, well, it was a really cool paper. And I know that your expertise is, it's the medieval times, right? It's like 1300 to 1800 or something. Yeah, 1300 to 1700. Uh, in any of your analysis of those of those time periods, did you see something similar, some similar kind of social movement that mirrors what's happening today and give us any sort of insight? Well, I mean, we have the the whole aesthetic Mm -hmm. thing going on in, in the um in the sort of late medieval period where we've we've got there's always this kind of person who does want to to become very very knowledgeable about a certain thing to atone to 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 do penance for mm -hmm. things and i do see i do see quite a lot of that coming up again but i i don't know i mean you you, you can try and you can sort of be over simplistic with with this kind of thing i mean what we're seeing now it really is it really is unique. We've seen these kind of movements before, this kind of zeal, this kind of counter-enlightenment um, thing going on, which, which really appeals to a lot of people. But it's unique. It's, it's nothing. I don't think there has ever been a movement before which is so sort of self-hating self on a lot of points because it really, it's, intersectionality really is... Um, dominated by by white activists, um, white scholars, but I mean mo more women though I think than than men. So, do you think it's something unique about some sort of gender uh, predisposition in behavior? Is it a higher trait openness that's causing this um, kind of a drift or this huge gender imbalance in the field? I, I think with this, because we're looking at people and we're looking at um, empathising. I mean, if, if we're we're comparing it to to religion, and, and this is something I've, I've studied quite a lot. I mean, I've looked at the different things men and women have done with religion. We see a lot of um, men codifying mm -hmm. um, things, and they're 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 listing, and they're um, and you know Aquinas, who who may well have been autistic, is is, is the epitome of this um, of this sort of trying to make everything go in steps and then you have the the female writers i mean a lot, there are a lot of male mystics as well but they've got a kind of different um spirituality going on altogether daphne handsome is is very good on this mm -hmm. and it's much more of a, a sort of connected um a sort of spiritual feelings based um religion so yeah i i think that this this kind of activism is going to and scholarship is going to appeal more um, to women, but then uh, scholarship in the humanities into gender is going to anyway. I, I as I said, I, I study women's history 
um, from the you know fourteenth century, and maybe one in twenty of my sources is a is a male historian. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm going for this empirical <laughs> thing. Just just kind of uh, commenting on what you said there. I think you do see an interesting trend with men, though, in you know at least modern day religion. Actually, to be fair, at least for the past like few hundred years, where there are a lot of male religious apologists that derive, you know, a lot of pleasure in sort of taking, you know, contradictory claims in the Bible or religious scriptures and trying to justify them and playing these, you know, word games, essentially. Mm. And, it, and it's that is analogous to, you know, the uh, sort of the, the 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 literature and the the scholarship you're referencing, because they have the, you know, sort of a, uh, a formed conclusion beforehand and they, you mm-hmm. know, will then dive into the, you know, the evidence and the claims and then sort of construct a model that fits the conclusion. And yeah, you do say that among men, just uh, at least a lot more predominantly than women in in religion. I think so. And I think I I have said um, and just annoyed everybody that the the triad of woo is uh, (laughs) postmodernism, theology and metaphysics. And if you want to find the the really annoying, obfuscating, sort of quite pompous idiots in uh, <laughs> making these arguments. Then you're, you're going to find the worst of them in metaphysics and they're going to be predominantly men. And I, I think this is a, a similar kind of, of practice, but, but the, and I, you know, there's, and I'm now going to annoy all of my philosophers and I don't mean to, some of you are great and you're brilliant and I love you, but there are some and you all know who they are. They're the ones that you try to have a conversation with and then you just can't get past definitions and then you've defined yourself out of existence and then you just have to give up and go away. So that's, that <laughs> behavior, I'm, I think it does come more from men, but when you're going through the, the, the literary theory or the, the social justice theory, then it's coming. It's the same kind of process, but it's it's more appealing to women. Sure, sure, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> that, that's interesting. Um, what what kind of? So you said that you more or less have left academia. What kind of pushback have you gotten from your work, but especially from the emergence of these hoax papers? I I left um, I left university about three years ago. I was going to decide. I was going to do a um, work up a PhD proposal and then I just started writing so much about what was going on now I haven't been back I was I was a little bit concerned that I might um I might become unpopular but I haven't I haven't heard anything from my own my my last where I did a postgraduate study they phoned me up and said that um, a very dubious Russian um outlet was trying to to find me and did I want to talk to them and they'd been in touch with them but otherwise I haven't heard <laughs> I haven't heard much from the universities huh. I don't know I don't know what would happen if I tried if I tried to go back and do a PhD now I, I think I'm I might be unpopular but I haven't tested that yeah no I, it's just <laughs> I, I guess I'm kind of personally interested in that because um mm. I mean, it seems like, you know, the four of us are interested in higher education and and graduate school and things like that. And it is weird that I've sensed a a transition between disagreeing cordially and moralizing disagreements now, where it seems like Mm -hmm. before you could disagree with people on a whole, you know, a whole slew of topics in philosophy and literature, in history, in gender studies, um, Mm -hmm. And they could just be disagreements, right? And you can uh, you can be friends with people who you disagree with, but it seems like more and more now there's this intense moralization of all of these 
empirical or factual disagreements about you know real arguments and stuff like mm -hmm. that and it's it's making it really difficult to maintain academic relationships that that you know between people who differ um yeah absolutely it, it, i i think that one paper that i i think you'd um you you'd like it it would show you a lot of how this works it is called tracking privilege preserving epistemic pushback and that's by Alison Bailey. And she addresses this, this idea that there can be legitimate disagreement in um, philosophy and ethics, um, which includes disagreement with social justice scholarship. And she essentially argues that there, there can't be, that this just um, is trying to preserve um, the epistemic privilege that the right to decide what knowledge is of, of privileged groups. So if you're really into this kind of mindset, it's just not possible for someone to think you know, a couple of a couple of examples she gives is is a man uh, who questioned um, the wage gap, was it? Or, or then another person who asked whether or not we should uh, care about male victims of domestic violence. And these, they're saying, well, these are shadow texts. They're just trying to get away from the point, and they need to be shut down and not engaged with. And that um, that's the one I, I we based our um, the jokes on you paper on, which Hypatia accepted that was the one quickest one being accepted where we just said there is no way any attempt to argue with social justice scholarship is is just wrong and it mustn't be engaged with and it must be stopped so at this it, it is again it is very much like like religion if you believe that you have the truth you have the the concept of you know the correct conception of society you're not going to let people um come in and uh, and mess that up you know the fear with religion is that um atheists who would criticize religion could lead people astray they could cause great damage they were they were harming people and this is what we hear a lot as well if, if you want to to criticize social justice scholarship it isn't that you're you're disagreeing with the methods it's that you are denying the right of people to exist you're creating a hostile environment you're 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 really just perpetuating oppression and and probably death <laughs> <laughs> from that perspective i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna use that line in the future when i'm wrong in a conversation like when someone <laughs> points out that i'm wrong and be like you just want power you just want power i'm like, <laughs> just, just denying like, adam's personhood <laughs> yeah just, you know, they're like, they're like, just look it up i'm like that's all you want you just want you want power over me right now <laughs> it is it's like a, it's a trump card mm. sorry what was that helen I said Sorry, that's the way to end a conversation. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, on that note, what do you? Th so, what can the average person just having a conversation where these things are brought up against them? What can they do? Uh, I I think that we we just need to get more confident in don't go down that rabbit hole. Hmm. If somebody asks you, well, who are you to say that being a white man? Um, don't sort of say, well, I I have had experiences of what. No, just say. I don't accept this epistemology where I have to have a certain identity to have a, an opinion on something. And mm. they will, they will probably just, this will not make sense to them. And they will probably come back again and say, but you're white. You shouldn't speak because you're white. And it's like, no, I, I don't share that view. I believe that you know, everybody can have an opinion on everything. Arguments stand on their merits and, you know, stand by that proudly because people will then respond to you that you are, trying to preserve some kind of status quo because of your white male privilege or something like this. But the more of us that just say, no, this is nonsense. This is not helping anything. I don't believe in it. This is your belief system. I don't share it. Stop it. 
Do you think we also have a responsibility to try to find some of the good literature from these fields? Because there are works that are made that are valid and they make good critiques and they put real insight into the conversation of gender differences and experience. Yes, yeah, and anything anything good that comes up, I've I've got quite a quite a lot of good stuff in um, in social history, um, mm -hmm. which is uh, feminist, but um, but uh, empirical and and reasonable feminism. So yeah, do um, find find the good stuff, praise the good stuff, point out the the bad stuff, laugh at it, and make it a bit embarrassing, and and make people want to actually do rigorous scholarship again and make the average person want to have a reasoned argument again and obviously one of the best things we can do if we're talking in the public sphere or whatever level to people who disagree with us is model that ourselves so be prepared to say oh yeah I was wrong then thank you for for <laughs> correcting me on that which is really really hard but yeah. you know if we can actually try and and do that and um and be responsive to evidence and, and not try and have this battle where we where we want to win and then you know there can be a bit of a sleight of hand if you, if you think you're getting off on the wrong foot yeah then just try and bring it back and and say how much res more respect would you have for someone who said that's a really good point actually thanks I'm, I'm going to think about that I think I've changed my mind mm. that that person you'd have much more respect for their opinion in future wouldn't you but we don't feel it when it's ourselves we feel humiliated if it gets to that so that's something i think we need to do so make arguments great again in other words mega <laughs> oh, okay all right <laughs> yes <laughs> clever spin teddy yeah always <laughs> well, yeah. Um, i think well, I, I was thinking more along the lines of teddy was thinking about trolling again Oh, I love trolling. I think that's, yeah, yeah no, that's, I was, no trolling. <laughs> just like Jordan. Well, if you follow, I follow accounts like New Peer Review. I don't know if you've seen them on Twitter, where they bring uh -huh. up some of the most amazing pieces of you know very, very creativity. That's the kind of trolling that I enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, I'm much better with Helen when I say no to trolling. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's too fun. It's too fun. But as long as you're willing to admit that you're wrong, then you can do it. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. I'm more of a fan of just outright ridicule. <laughs> yeah, ridicule yeah. has its place. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Um well yeah, so thank you so much, uh Helen, for doing this. And before we close out, um tell people where they can find um your new book and, and when it's releasing and all of your other work. Uh well I'm it's gonna be it's not gonna be, I don't think, until uh spring two thousand and twenty and it's pitchstone publishing. And yeah, I am looking at postmodernism and how it evolved through various forms of critical theory and why it's a problem and how it's affecting us right now. <laughs> that sounds really interesting. We'd love to have you back on when that uh, when that comes out. Thank you. That'd be good. <laughs> and um, where can people follow you um, online? You you run a magazine and um, yeah, Aereo, Aereo magazine. That's A R E O. People keep spelling it wrong. And <laughs> I'm um, H Pluckrose on Twitter. Sounds good. Um, well, yeah. Thank you so much. This was a great education into um, you know academic leftism and everything, and. Um, yeah, so people uh, who are watching, please go follow Helen and uh, check out her work. And uh, to Helen, thank you again. And to our listeners, tune in next time. <laughs> thank you. It's been fun. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed that episode and learned something from it. And if you want to support my work and what I'm doing, you can do so by supporting me on Patreon. You can go um, to patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers and donate um, on a monthly basis and receive rewards for your donation. Um, again, that's J-O-R-D-A-N-M-Y-E-R-S. And uh, the links will to everything will be in the description below. 
If you can't monetarily support me, you can support me in other ways by liking this video, uh, commenting on it below, reviewing the show on iTunes, or sharing it with a friend or with your Twitter followers. Um, you can also email me at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com and follow me on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And if you want, um, you can check out my other show called That's BS. Um, it's a more discussion-based show with me and friends. Uh, I mentioned it at the top of this episode. So um, if you enjoyed this, please consider supporting me on Patreon. And as always, thanks for listening.